I have a disclaimer before we get started. I don't usually do this before sermons, but considering the subject, I'm going to be talking about some heavy stuff. I'm going to be talking about secret sins that people carry inside. Um, you might be tempted to think, oh, well, he knows some things that I don't. I wonder who the big sinner is around here. Trust me, I don't know anything. I don't know anything beyond what you know. I'm just preaching what is in the text and going where the text leads me. So don't, let me put it this way. This is always true. This should always be true. If I know that you're involved in something that's going to hurt you, I should come to you privately, personally. That's true of me. That's true of everybody here. When you see somebody stumbling, somebody sinning, you confront them directly in private. It's cowardly. It would be cowardly for me to passively, aggressively snipe at you from behind the comfort of a pulpit, okay? So don't sit there thinking, oh, I wonder who he's talking about. Don't sit there thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. He or she really needs to hear this. But instead, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and to expose whatever needs to be exposed this morning, because that's where healing comes from when you bring things into the light. So we're in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Now you're really curious what we're going to talk about, aren't you? Amos 8, 1 through 12. I'm going to start with this little story. Tim Shaw is a radio host of a car-based show in the UK, England. So a show about cars. We have those kinds of radio shows and podcasts here. But Tim Shaw is what is known as a, as a shock jock. Remember what those are, right? He uses a lot of, uh, a lot of extreme language, a lot of, uh, says a lot of inflammatory things to get attention. Not my breed of thing, not my style, but some people like it. So several years ago, Tim Shaw was doing a show and he was interviewing a supermodel. I don't know what that has to do with cars, but that's what he was doing. And he made the comment during the interview that, hey, you're so beautiful, I would be happy to leave my wife for you. His wife was listening. His wife's name is Haley. She got vengeance in a very interesting way. Now, I don't condone vengeance. I'm not on the side of that, but if you're going to, at least make it clever. What she did was she took his Lotus Esprit Turbo, which is a very expensive sports car, which for some reason was purchased in her name, so she had the title. She put it on sale on eBay right that moment for 90 cents. The notification said, please help me get rid of this car before my cheating husband gets home. By the way, there were other words in the note. I don't read those for you. But it sold within five minutes. Five minutes. Got to be some kind of record. Later that day, she got a message from the purchaser, and the message said, thank you, Haley, the car is excellent. P.S., thank your hubby for me. They are not married today, as you can probably imagine. So uh, that story just reminds me of a verse from the New Testament that you may have heard. It's Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, That verse, if you take out the phrase, God is not mocked, virtually anybody worldwide could agree with it. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in Jesus to understand that consequences have actions. We know, we know this. Once we get to be adults, at least, if your diet consists of nothing but bacon, donuts, and cigarettes, or if you max out your credit card and only pay the minimum balance every month, or if you like to apply your makeup while you're driving down 45 at 85 miles an hour, or if you flirt with pinup girls on the radio while your wife is listening, these kinds of things tend to come back on you. These kinds of things tend to have consequences that you didn't anticipate. What people don't seem to recognize 
is that it's not just the public things. It's not just the outward things. It's not just your reputation. It's the things you think you've hidden. It's the spiritual things. It's the, it's the sins of the mind. It's the sins of intention. It's what you hold in your heart. It's all those things you think you have successfully hidden from the world. Because the thing is, we as religious people, we're good at putting on masks. I mean, the whole world is, but we wear special masks that make us look righteous. And we think as long as we've got the world fooled, we're, we're good. As long as people think we're righteous, we're good. We care about our reputation and not our character, but God is the opposite. God doesn't really care about our reputation. He cares about our character. He cares about who we are. Because He knows who we are will eventually have repercussions in our lives and the lives of everybody around us. In this message today, He gives us a very beautiful, a very brutal, but a very necessary and loving word. Change now before it hurts everybody around you. So, Verse 1 of chapter 8 of the book of Amos. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Now why? Why this vision? I'm going to pause here and just explain because there's no explanation in the text. But everybody in that time would have said, oh, what he's talking about is the harvest. What you put into the ground comes back out. It comes back out in a different form. What you put in the ground, you can sow it and think, oh, I'm never going to see that again. And then out it comes and there's a harvest. That's the summer fruit, right? You and I may do actions and think, there's been no consequences. Looks like I got away with it. God's point is, you never really get away with it. There's always a consequence sooner or later. And that's the point he's trying to make through Amos to the people of Israel. So I pick up where I left off. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. It's not going to be a Passover this time. He says, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So this message has two points. And the first one is, God knows the truth about our lives. God knows what no one else knows about us. God knows what we're not even willing to acknowledge to other people or even to ourselves. And the theme, if you had to sum up a theme of the whole book of Amos, it would be this sentence, you can't fool God. You can fool others, you can even fool yourself, but you can't fool Him. See, the people of Israel were very religious. They were were conspicuous about following laws and and keeping rules, and showing up at the temple when they were supposed to, and offering their sacrifices, just like God said. But God's point is, religiousness is no substitute for righteousness. You can't fool God. You can't say, well, I've done all these things. I've sung you your songs, and I've given you your offerings, and I've made your sacrifices. I've done everything you said, so I deserve a little thing over here of my own. It's sort of like when you were a little kid, and don't try to deny it, we were all this way. When you were a little kid, and your parents knew you were up to something, and they would call out, what are you doing? And the worst thing in the world you could say is, nothing. Because they always knew nothing never means nothing. If your kid says, I'm doing nothing, that's when you show up in their room immediately. 
Because as, as a kid, you think you're able to fool your parents. I, I don't know why we think this, why we think our parents are idiots, but they always discover the truth. And, and so you might as well just confess it. Okay, mom, I'm, I'm here pummeling my sibling, uh, trying to kill them uh, you know, physically, or I'm, I'm performing surgery on the cat, or I'm trying to light the house on fire. Whatever it is you're doing, you might as well confess it. And that's the point God is making. Just confess. I'm going to know. I'm here for you. I'm not against you. Don't keep secrets from me. Bring it into the light so I can make it right. So Amos names three specific sins that the people of Israel are guilty of. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's three things, some of which we've already talked about in this series. First of all, they didn't care about the poor. You remember perhaps a few weeks ago when we talked about the cows of Bashan, the wealthy women of Israel who, as I said then, uh, they were accused by Amos of of oppressing the poor. And and you might have thought, and they might have thought, well, I don't have any power in society. How can I oppress anybody? But the point I made was just by living the kinds of lifestyles they lived, where they were just rapacious in wanting more. And, and, you know, I need a new house and I need new furniture and I need new, new clothes and I need better food and I need... And in doing that and never thinking of those around them who had less, they made the lives of others worse. And here he says, you trample on the needy and you bring the poor of the land to an end. You sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Think about it. Life had gotten so bad, they were buying slaves for the cost of a pair of shoes. Instead of saying, my gosh, I shouldn't be buying a fellow human being. They instead were saying, what a deal I'm getting. That's where we get to, where we we forget that people around us who are struggling are our responsibility. And it's not that rich people are sinners and poor people are righteous. That's not the case. In fact, how do you even quantify those two terms? Anybody in this room, I guarantee you, if you went to India right now, you'd be considered rich or, or many countries around the world. So it's all relative. The point is, if you've got more than you need to survive, and I think all of us do, then God holds us accountable for How much of that do we use for His glory? How much of that do we use to show other people that they're loved by God, that they're important to Him? Do we give a thought to that? Because He's going to hold us accountable for that. I love Luke 12, 48. I say I love it. It it terrifies me. But it says, Everyone to whom much was given of Him, much will be required. God holds us accountable for our excess. And if we've been extra blessed, and most of us have, God's going to hold us accountable for what we did with it. Number two, They loved money more than God. This was their second big sin. As he quotes them saying, when's the new moon going to be over so we can go back to selling our grain? When's the Sabbath going to end so we can offer our wheat for sale? Essentially, it's saying they were keeping the Sabbath. So once every seven days, they were knocking off work and they were going to the temple and they were doing what they were supposed to do. But all the while, the whole 24 hours, they were celebrating the Sabbath in their hearts. They were saying, okay, when's this going to be over? I got money to make. Time is money. I can't, I can't waste any time. I got to get back onto the grindstone. I got to make more. See, God doesn't just care about what we do on the outside. He cares about our hearts. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve two masters. And Jesus is just brutally honest. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. He's speaking to a culture that is Collectively, a lot poorer than ours. Not affluent at all. And yet he says, I know you're going to be tempted to worship wealth. He even uses the term mammon that we don't use anymore. It's an ancient word for wealth, but it was a word that you used like a personal name. 
It's like he named wealth and said, okay, you've got two gods that are competing for your affections, and one of them is, is mammon, and one of them is Yahweh, my father. And you've got to choose. You can't worship both. In fact, you can't worship Yahweh so he'll give you mammon. That's what we try to do. So no, you have to be all for him or nothing. Even more brutally honest is 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So this instinct within us that is sort of endorsed by all of our culture that says, I've got to get more, I've got to get more. That's what success looks like. That is a trap. That is something we need to repent of. I can just give you my own testimony. So yesterday, my wife and I have breakfast together once a week, and yesterday over breakfast she said, you know, when you think back over all the places we've lived before Conroe, what do you think was the best one? I thought, well, that's really hard because we've lived in a lot of places and had good experiences in all of them. And I said, you know, this is not necessarily my favorite, but it always surprises me to think back to when I was in seminary and we lived in Fort Worth, how happy we were then because we had no money. I mean, I was working a part-time job. She was working at a sec- as a secretary. We lived in a house that was literally infested with mice. I've got stories here for another time. Uh, the house had no central AC or heat. So we boiled or we froze year-round. And, and we were giving 10% of what we made back to our church, that little bit. <laughs> and yet, we were so happy. I have nothing but good memories of that time. And it's just a, a reminder to me of the faithfulness of God that when, you are, when your heart is like, I really want to please you, God, I really want to serve you, you have joy, no matter how much you have in the bank. So remember that when you're tempted to chase after wealth as the answer to your prayers. Their third sin was... They were dishonest in their business dealings. Kind of related to the first two. But he quotes them as saying, we want to make the ephah small and the shekel large. What is he talking about? The the ephah was a a unit of measurement. Like you would would get an ephah of wheat or grain. The shekel was the coin you paid. So he said, I want to make more money for less grain. I want you to, I want to rig my scales in such a way that when you buy from me a pound of grain, I'm giving you 14 ounces and you don't know it. I want to be able to pay my workers less than everybody else pays their workers, and that way I'll get ahead. I want to not declare everything that happens so I can keep some for myself. You know, it it should embarrass all of us. Some of you are, are too young to remember this, but back in 2001 when Enron collapsed, that was huge news for months. It should embarrass us to know that some of the leaders of that company, some of the main men in that company, were leaders in their church deacons, Sunday school teachers. They've managed to compartmentalize things so they could say, I'm a righteous person, even though I'm doing these really shady things over here that ended up putting thousands of people out of work and and draining the life savings of thousands of people. And God sees all of that. God knows all of that. It's not just the scandalous sins that God punishes. It's all sin because His name is at stake. And His name matters because its name is the only one through which we can be saved. And that's just the three sins that God names. It's not an exhaustive list. There's a lot of other things the Israelites were involved in. There's a lot of other things that you and I are involved in. And I don't know. Again, like I said at the top, I don't know who's doing what around here. And I don't want to know. The Holy Spirit knows. It could be that some of you are involved in relationships that you know you shouldn't be. 
Could be that some of you are looking at things on computer screens that you know you shouldn't be looking at. Maybe you're using the internet to harass somebody or to, to yell at your enemies or, or to, you know, in a, in a very cowardly way, uh, tear other people down. It could be that you're a person who everybody looks at and says, oh, well, you know, he he's never loses his temper or she's a kind and, and, and gracious person, but secretly you're, you're very full of bitterness and you're good at holding on to grudges. You never forgive. It could be that you're someone who is very good at pretending to be righteous. You've got us all fooled, but you know in your heart you don't really have a relationship to God. And I could go on. I could just name hypothetical sin after sin, and we could be here all day, and some of them would land and some of them wouldn't. My point is, all of them matter, and all of them have consequences, both here and in the life to come. And now is the time to bring that into the open before it's too late. Because the second point of the sermon is, there are consequences for continual disobedience. Now, I know it's not the most exciting part of the Bible, but when you read the Law of Moses, especially Leviticus, about the sacrifices, again, not my favorite part, but one of the things you find interesting is there are different sacrifices for unintentional sins versus intentional sins. So the unintentional sins are when you didn't intend to do anything wrong, you just you lost your temper, you, your temptation got the best of you, circumstances happened and you did the wrong thing, and now you feel bad about it. And okay, there's a sacrifice for that in the Old Testament, but the intentional sin. That's when you knew what you were doing. That's the habit that you know is wrong, but you never confront it. That's, that's, I know this is a wrong decision, but I've done all these good things over here, so I deserve something for me. That's a different category. And there are consequences for that kind of rebellion against God. He goes on in verse 7 and says, The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sunk again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So he prophesies two specific things that Israel is going to experience if they don't repent. And the first is they're going to experience the destruction of everything they loved. They're going to lose everything. When he talks about darkness at noon and an earthquake and things like that, it may not necessarily be literal because those are images that are used by other prophets. It's probably more like apocalyptic imagery to say bad things are coming and they're coming out upon you when you least expect it. It's like a, a solar eclipse or, or an earthquake that you didn't see coming. In verse 3 that we read earlier, uh, he, he talks about how the praises in the temple, the songs of praise that normally resound in the temple will be replaced by the wailing of mourners crying about, look how many dead people there are. Look at the bodies of my neighbors lying around. Think about this, and I know it's not pleasant to think about, but the Assyrians were the ones that were coming. That was the army that was about to invade. Let me tell you a little something to give you some context. 
When historians and our archaeologists go back and they uncover the annals, the chronicles of the kings of these various empires, when they're looking at the kings of Babylon or Greece or Persia or Rome, what they find is these guys like to brag about the things they've accomplished, right? They like to talk about, I built this city, or I, I constructed this building, or I built this great monument. But the kings of Assyria are different. All they like to brag about is how many people they killed. All they like to brag about is the blood that was shed, how many heads they had piled at the entrance to this city they conquered. And that's the group of people that are coming for Israel. And God is trying to get them, is trying to save them from that. He's saying, you can still turn things around, but now is the time. Now is the time before you lose everything. There's a quote that I've heard many times um, that I want to share with you that relates to this. It says, Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. I hope that burns itself in your memory because in every one of us, there's this temptation to believe that we've got control of our own sin. To think, okay, I know this thing over here that I do all the time is wrong. I know this activity that I'm engaged in, this, this relationship, this, this habit, this, this way that I typically act or this thing that I'm currently engaged in. I know it's not right in the eyes of God. But so far, I haven't seen anything bad happen. I hadn't hurt anybody. Nobody seems to know. I think it'll stay that way. And even if it starts to impact me in some negative way, I can quit any time. I've got control of this. But you don't. That's one of the deceptive things about sin. It lures you in and says, I'm your friend. This is going to be okay. God may not like it, but he doesn't know everything. I, I've got this. And before you know it, you've gone farther. You've paid more. You've stayed longer than you ever intended. You know, the interesting thing is, when I was getting ready for the sermon and I, I, I wanted to use that quote, I thought, you know, good practice to attribute it. I'm not going to act like I made it up. So who originally said that? So I, I got on the internet and I, I got on my search engine and I typed that in and I said, okay, who said this first? And the interesting thing is no one seems to know it's been attributed to various people. Various people have shared it in their books and their sermons. One of the people that it's attributed to was Ravi Zacharias. Some of you know that Ravi Zacharias for many, many years was this brilliant Christian apologist. I mean, this is a man who went around the world and defended the faith with great skill, with great brilliance. I was a great admirer of his. Then late in Ravi's life, we find out behind the scenes, in secret, he was doing these terrible things. He was victimizing women, poor women, around the world, literally. And it all came out. It all came to light. Destroyed his reputation, destroyed his ministry. But even more, think about the lives he destroyed. The lives of those women, their families. Think about the people who might have believed in Jesus if they hadn't heard that. Think about the damage done to countless, countless lives. And I'm sure he thought, I'm doing all this good. I deserve something for me. And nobody knows. Nobody will ever find out. That's, that's what sin does. So not only will you lose everything but if you don't repent, number two, they'll suffer 
the disruption of their relationship with God. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but in verses 11 and 12, when he talks about you're going to experience a famine for hearing the words of the Lord, he's being literal. The scholars say that Amos' ministry in Israel probably only lasted a few months at most. And you can imagine him just kind of packing up his meager belongings and heading back south down to Judah where he went back to scratching out an existence as a, as a farmer and a shepherd. And meanwhile, that was the last time the people of Israel heard the word of God. From then on, it was radio silence out of heaven. And bad things start to happen and they start to go, hey God, why is this happening? It's like, I already told you. That's all you're getting from me. You wouldn't listen. So until you repent, I'm not going to speak anymore. That may sound mean. That may sound cruel. But God will do whatever it takes to get our attention. God loves us too much to let us be happy in our sin. If there's, anything else, there's nothing else you hear, know that. God loves us too much to let us be happy in our sin. And that's even true today. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you know the beginning of the book of Revelation. We preached on this last year. It starts with these seven letters to these seven real churches that existed back then. And several of them, God says, okay, I've laid out for you the ways you need to change. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take away my lampstand. Well, the lampstand represents the presence of God. He's saying, if you don't repent, pretty soon I'm not going to be there when you gather to worship. And you'll be singing your songs, but you'll be singing them to the wind. And you'll be praying your prayers, but they'll be bouncing off the ceiling and hitting you in the forehead. Your preacher will stand up and preach, but nobody's life will be changed because I'm not going to be there. Because you're just putting on a show. And I can't help but wonder how, how many churches that's true of today. That's a haunting thought. That's a terrifying thought. See, we talk about revival. We talk about how our nation needs to turn around. And, and I think when we say that, we're often talking about people out there. But it, it starts in here. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. If we're not shining like a city on the hill, that's why our nation's in the shape it's in. And so, in a minute, when I ask you to pray and just ask the Lord to expose anything in your heart that needs to be confessed, that needs to get right with Him, I'm, I'm quite aware that there's many of you, maybe most of you, as your pastor, I believe most of you, will be able to say before the Lord with a clear conscience, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've still got a lot of sin in my heart, but all of it is open and confessed before you, and I'm holding nothing back. But if that's the case, go on to say, but Lord, we need revival. Because it's not just about you. It's about us. We need revival. Even if you're right with God, we're not right with God. And we need to be brought back to Him. We need to take the stone out of our own eyes, the, the, the log out of our own eyes, so we can get, regain the credibility we once had to draw people to Christ. See, the answer to all of these things is simply this. Jesus brought our sins into the open. That's what the cross is. The cross is that moment when Jesus brought our sins and put them into broad daylight. Because think about how Jesus died. He wasn't killed behind closed doors. He wasn't killed under the cover of darkness. They put him up on a cross for all the world to see on a, on a common thoroughfare where hundreds of people would walk by. They stripped him of everything. 
When we depict the cross, we give Jesus a modicum of dignity, and I'm glad we do, but the Romans didn't do that. They stripped him of everything. All his dignity was gone, his reputation gone, and Jesus was okay with that if it meant our salvation. That's the bargain he made so that we could be saved. He was bringing our sin into the open so that it could be destroyed, so that it could be nailed to the cross where it is to this day. And the answer, when you're struggling and when you say, I know I'm not right, the answer is to bring it into the open. I don't mean you have to stand and yell it out to everybody in this church, but I'm saying you got to bring it before God and be honest about it. Call it what it is. No excuses, no rationalizations. Just say, Lord, heal me. Make me right again. Put me back on the right path. Don't worry about your dignity. Don't worry about your reputation. None of those things matter like getting right with Him. Just come to the one who died to save you.